Thank you, Amy, for the reading of that passage. I don't know about you, but do you guys have favorite, like, love songs that have kind of locked into your memory? And maybe they remind you of a particular time or a particular relationship. So I'm going to do a little bit of a different start today. I'm going to play my favorite love songs for you, and uh, you get to guess, like, name that tune. Okay, so uh, here's one. Anyone recognize this? All right. Alicia Keys, right? If I Ain't Got You, Babe. How many of our musical tastes actually overlap here? And then this one we play, I played for our kids last night, and they were like, I've never heard of this song. I was like, you guys are missing out. What's that? No, it's uh, actually Casey and Jojo all my life. <laughs> all right. And so, um, there's, but there's one that was probably more meaningful for me is because this is what we had planned for Julia to walk down the aisle to, right? So, what was it? No, that's the wrong song. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Pastor Bill, Callan, and D. But, See, she was very surprised because she didn't expect that because she began to hear this. To me, get it? You are so beautiful. To me, can't you see it? All right, you guys are good. You know, so as I played that song, she uh, was like, first, very anxious. She goes like, this is not the song that we planned, as I saw her walking down. And uh, very quickly, it turned into holding back tears, because she realized it was me singing that song. And she was holding back tears, because she didn't want her makeup to be ruined for the photos. (laughs) You know what makes these songs like these great? You may have other kinds of songs. Uh, that are memorable to you. They have beautiful melodies. They're well-performed. But more importantly, I think we connect with those kinds of songs because they articulate a particular emotion that comes from the depths of our being. They put imagery and melodies to those emotions. Now, the text that we just heard read is one of the greatest love songs, except we don't get to hear the singer We don't get to find an original recording of it on YouTube or on Spotify. In fact, we don't even know how this song sounds. But the song is great because it describes a kind of love that every human is longing for. We're in the final week of our Advent season where where we've been naming these longings of our human experience and reminded of how they are fulfilled in the arrival of Jesus Christ. And today we look at this longing for love that I think all of us can recognize goes on in our hearts to some degree. In Christ's first arrival, we discover how love has come. And when love comes, we see three things. Love's vision, love's action, and love's benefit. Love's vision, love's action, and love's benefit. You know, Mary's song has traditionally been known as the Magnificat because that's the first word of 
the Latin translation. The Magnificat is a great song because every word of it is, comes out of a, a biblical quotation that Mary has immersed herself with since childhood. It's like a compilation album, except it's not an album, it's a song. It's a compilation song of all of these prayers from the Jewish book of prayers. And this signals, in some ways, the importance of singing and using the, the, the prayer book of the Jews, but also of the prayers and songs that we've been singing like this morning. They help us connect with this story and remind us of these truths of God's faithfulness. And that's why uh, in two nights from now, we're going to be doing a Christmas Eve service, the first time for a while, first time in a long time for WCF, where we're going to journey through the Christmas story and also sing carols that remind us of this story to set that truth into our hearts in song. These psalms give voice to what Mary have been has been praying all along. And more importantly, this song is great because it describes a kind of love that humanity has been longing for. Mary said and begins with this song saying, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. Mary begins her song declaring this emotion welling up from deep within her, and it gives us the reason why it's happening. Because he has been mindful, or in some translations, he has looked upon. The Greek word epiblepso uh, the verb can be described or translated as looked intently or to look attentively at someone with the implication of personal concern. This song bursts from her heart because she realizes fr from the depths of her heart that God's love is for her when he sees her, despite her humble estate. Love's vision here is that God sees and God's love is responded to in being seen. You see, Mary's song isn't just a story about herself, though, but about all who fear God and recognize that they, too, are objects of God's mercy and grace, that they are seen by the living God. You know, there's another singer you may know who has been singing of love for much of his career. You know, Rocket Man is a recent movie uh, following the rise of musician and performer Elton John. And one of the subtexts in this movie is John's relationship with his father and his longing to be loved and longing to be recognized and seen by his father. John describes his father in an interview. He says this about his father. He was dismissive, disappointed, and finally absent. I just wanted him to acknowledge what I'd done, but he never did. It wasn't that he didn't know how to relate to kids. He left us, talking about him and his mom. He left us, remarried, and had another family, and by all accounts was a great dad to them. It wasn't children. It was me. Can you imagine what he's going through to be able to say this publicly? There's a scene in the movie where John returns to visit his father one more time after being estranged for many years after rising to musical success. And he sees his father playing delightfully with the sons from his new marriage. And it's a side of the father that John never experienced for himself. John carried with him this shadow of wanting to be seen and loved by his father and feeling that was never fulfilled despite all of his worldly and professional success. 
in Mary's declaration that God has seen her, what does God actually see? You know, God sees a poor girl, a girl from people who are on the outside. She's, in fact, a teenager at this time. She comes from a people who are oppressed and conquered. But God also sees a girl with deep hope, with deep peace and joy and love. At this point, Mary has gone to visit her cousin Elizabeth, with whom she sings this song. And Mary and Elizabeth are deeply steeped in shame. They know it far too well. One, that's Mary, for being unmarried and pregnant far earlier than she ever expected for her life. The other, Elizabeth, a woman who is pregnant far later than she ever expected in her life. And in that time, that was a significant source of shame. For Mary, little did she know that the man she was betrothed to, Joseph, would consider divorcing her, even before their marriage date. In ancient times, this was completely debilitating, leaving her unmarriable again and unable to support herself and her child. Imagine what would have gone through her mind at this point, finding out that you're pregnant, and eventually finding out, perhaps, that you would be left alone. How will you survive? unable to work, unable to be married again. Yet the song, this kind of song, rises from within her. She realizes that love has come to her and seen her humble estate. We find that God often uses people who are not so great in the world's eyes to work out his great purposes in the world. To love is to be truly seen by another and to truly see another and for another to truly see who we are. And in this angel's annunciation to Mary, God declares that Mary is truly seen and truly loved. So we remember Christ's arrival. We remember that love has come to us. Love has seen us. I invite you to take a moment right now and just pause. Close your eyes if you're comfortable. And and I'm going to say these words and hear them perhaps as God speaking to you. Take a deep breath in and hear that love has come to us. Love has come to me. Love has seen me. You can open your eyes again. You know, being loved by God in this way changes how we view things propels us outwards. Mary's hymn moves her from her own experience to being a message of love for millions of others. We see that God not only sees this girl, but he sees her people. And God sees the reality of their condition under Roman rule as we continue further in this song. Our culture is tremendously woke, right, to injustices. We use the power of technology and media to highlight injustices against the poor, highlight injustice against people of color, highlight cronyism in in politics. But the typical responses to injustice are to yell and to scream, to record them on YouTube and dominate the headlines and the news cycle and share them on social media so you can get likes and shares by most people who often think like you. But we learned just two weeks ago, that Jesus' arrival offers a different kind of response to injustice. It's justice that's wrapped 
in, and driven by love for the other, no matter what views they might hold. It's a kind of love that acts on behalf of others and so demands a response. Verses 50 to 53 say this, And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He scatters the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. And he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. We see that in love coming to us, it's a kind of love that not only sees, but it's a love that acts. It's a love that brings justice to the vulnerable, but also to the proud. The Greek word here translated mercy suggests kindness and compassion towards those in need. God's mercy is love in action. The Lord loves by seeing Mary and seeing her people who are in need of salvation. And when love comes to us in Christ, God's presence becomes a judgment of sorts as well. The birth of Christ demands a response and will require something of everyone. Jesus' coming is a presence that will both comfort the afflicted, but also afflict the comfortable, or the too comfortable. You know, those who mourn and grieve and who recognize their dependence will be met by the living God. God will come to them. But those who are bound in their self-sufficiency, in their self-determination, will also be met by God. They'll be confronted with the truest sense of power and authority. And the proud will be set back in the abundance of God become flesh. There are implications of Christ's arrival for Israelites, for the Israelites. God's arrival isn't just a personal experience for them, typical of our Western American Christianity. God's arrival comes to redeem broken parts of our world as well, where God's love is not experienced in all of its fullness. Philosopher Alain Alain Badiou contemplates how we fall and stay in love. He says this, Real love is one that triumphs lastingly, sometimes painfully, over the hurdles erected by time, space, and the world. Now, Badiou is referring to the hurdles of staying in love in a romantic relationship. But I wonder if this real love that he's referring to points to another kind of love that overcomes not only hurdles and obstacles and relationships between lovers, but spills over into hurdles and relationships of injustice in our world. You know, it's only after arriving in D.C. that I realized the tremendous disparity between the poor and the vulnerable and the rich and the, and the wealthy, the wealthy and the powerful. Out of America's 20th wealthiest counties, if you look at this list, the DMV region has nine of them based on household incomes ranging from $120,000 to $140,000 a year. Now, some of you in typical D.C. fashion are are going, yes, I'm I'm in top five. Or you're on the way to top three. That's not the point of this. You see, on the other side of this, D.C. child poverty, despite all this wealth, one in four children living in the district, that's D.C. proper, live below the federal poverty line, which the government has defined as a family of four living under $25,500 a year. Our neighbors here are living with one-fifth of the household income as the wider neighbors. Nearly half of children living in this district are in families where no parent has a full-time job. Now, you may not think you're that wealthy, especially if you compare yourself to your neighbors. 
but we are wealthy by the world's standards. And one of the delusions of wealth and of power and of status is that we might think we're in control of our lives. It's easy to shield ourselves from the plight of our most vulnerable neighbors. Love coming to us in Christ confronts our comfort and should move us towards those who are vulnerable. Yet this song is not a political manifesto that simply says the poor are right and hold a particularly enlightened place in this world. You know, many have tried to hold this text as the basis of a theology of liberation because of this passage's strong support of the poor. And some have even justified taking up arms on behalf of the poor and the marginalized communities. But this vindication that God supplies doesn't come through the barrel of a gun or through radical legislation or through being the loudest. It comes from a heart that's been changed by God. British theologian and pastor N.T. Wright comments on this passage. And he says, The blessed are not the poor, but the pious poor. Jesus says something similar. Blessed are the poor in spirit. The difference is significant because God does not fight with bullets, but with changed souls. And those who have come to know God's love, meeting them personally, are moved into areas of injustice in solidarity with God's own trajectory because their hearts have been changed by God's love. Since God is clearly compelled towards the poor, so should the church. And as a faith community here at WCF, meeting in the shadow of the most powerful and wealthy institutions of the nation and perhaps even of the world, we cannot ignore our most vulnerable and disadvantaged neighbors if we recognize how God's love comes to us in Christ. You know, the WCF Missions Fund recently designated a small gift towards Young Lives, which is a ministry to single teen moms living in the neighborhood or going to school in the neighborhood. And they're hoping to connect them with mentors. And I'm hoping that that's not the only thing that we can do as a community to help teen moms. Another thing I'm doing is participating in, a, in something called a racialized policing cohort and learning how every month in this setting, we're learning how the church might be a voice of advocacy for a criminal justice system that is tremendously punitive rather than restorative. As one of our elders, Daryl Byler, is working with Metro PD to, to move Esther Augsburger's uh, Guns to Plowshares sculpture from Harrisonburg back into D.C., because that's what she made it for, to move it back to Judiciary Square. I've, I've, you know, we're going to meet tomorrow to talk about how we can explore possibilities to, uh, to find partners in the MPD and, though, and, and also to partner with those who have done harm in our neighborhood, to work towards rehabilitation in our community. And that's going to take time, and I don't even know if that's even a possibility, because we all know how, things, how fast things move here in D.C., right? And until we get programs in place, you know, we've, we've been doing other things. You know, Les, our facility manager, has been bringing in a regular worker over the years who's been incarcerated to help around the facility and to help with projects, because he recognizes that those who have a prison record have a really hard time finding meaningful work. As recipients of God's loving action, his love compels us to find places for advocacy and for service. Love moves us into action, particularly for the marginalized and the poor. And we find that ultimately we are able to do so because of the benefit of God's love. 
In verse 53, Mary sings, He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. Mary quotes Psalm 107, 9, where God helps those who are in distress because he is merciful. In that psalm, the psalmist says, For he satisfies the thirsty and fills the hungry with good things. You know, when God's love comes, love fills us with good things. In the Advent season, the celebration of love is to recall and to celebrate how God has filled and is filling and will fill every broken gap in our world and in our lives. That's the hope of the Advent and Christmas season. In the incarnation, which literally means in the flesh, God in the flesh, God identifies with our hunger, he identifies with injustice, and he knows the desperation and the loneliness of our human lives. And in the midst of this desperation, God enters in not only to identify with our suffering, but to fill our hunger and to meet our every need. And in particular, we remember how God has filled our hunger for the divine, not just through the Christmas story, but also through the Easter and Pentecost stories. We remember this filling of good things on the first and third Sundays here at WCF um, through the communion meal, where we remember Christ's death for our sin and for our brokenness. In Jesus' birth, we wait expectantly for peace, for joy, and for love. And in his birth, we are seen, we are justified, and we are fed. In the incarnation of of God, we see love and what it means to be filled with good things. We are filled and met by the holy living God. At this point, thinking back to the claim I made at the beginning that this song is the greatest love song, but I think it might be, it might be a mistake. Mary's song might not be the greatest love song. It's actually the greatest love song before the greatest love song. The Magnificat is the prelude to the song. It's the gospel before the gospel. You see, Jesus has been conceived in Mary's womb at this point, and she sings this beautiful song, the greatest love song that we claim. But that's 30 weeks before he is born, and 30, week, uh, 30 years before Easter. Yet Mary sings boldly in the song as if all of the collective hunger of God's people for mercy, for hope, for fulfillment, for reversal of all things bad in their lives, for the revolution to come, for victory over evil, and for the Son of God to come to rescue. She sings as if that's happened. That's an amazing love we're singing about. You know, a different kind of love song has been playing since the beginning of creation. And that song climaxes at Christmas. And this season is an invitation to know the song. To hear the melodies and the harmonies that come around it and to join in the song by receiving the one whom the song is about. The greatest love song is not just the song of Mary, but it's the song of the living God who sings of his love come down by literally coming down to meet his people. And as we remember how God's love has come to us in Christ this season, I wonder if this song of all creation might ring in the depths of your soul like it does for Mary. In Christ's arrival, we are reminded that love has seen us. God has seen us. In Christ's arrival, we remind, we're reminded that God, that love is injustice. Love is 
justice for the poor and for the proud. And the God of justice is for the poor and the proud. We're reminded that love fills us with good things because God fills us with good things. With that in mind, let us celebrate and remember the gift of God's love to us in Christ. Amen.